the front of the bulletin cover, the, the Gospel of Mark, and our thrust is not to certainly have an exhaustive study on Sunday morning of the Gospel of Mark. We, we haven't had time for that, or we're not taking that time. I suppose we could go a few verses a week and do that. But our, our purpose here has been to move through Mark's Gospel in ways that help us to know and to follow Jesus. What, chapter by chapter, what can we know about our Lord? What is something that's here that's for us? And how would we follow Him in light of that knowledge, in light of that understanding? Now, on the, on the picture, each, on Bolton each week as well, we've had a photo that, that somehow connects to or relates to the chapter that's before us. And this week, we are in chapter 15. Chapter 15, I've called this the king worth believing in. And chapter 15 comes in the midst of Jesus' arrest. He's already been before a tribunal of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And now they, they, they want to be rid of him, but they are like a toothless tiger. They can't do anything about it. And so now they take him to the Romans who can. So they bring him first thing in the morning, early in the morning, 6 a.m. probably, uh, to, to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And uh, um, they bring those charges, and they bring him to Pilate. Most likely, it was formerly Herod the Great's palace. And uh, this would be on the upper city of Jerusalem. It would, in fact, it's interesting, it's on, the, it's on the west hill, the upper city. The elevation rises again as you go up to the west, away from the Temple Mount. And Herod builds this magnificent palace there, Herod the Great. And um, arch archaeologists have suggested that the um, elevation of Herod's palace is just a little bit higher than the elevation of the Temple Mount. Now, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible is true. The Bible is true. But archaeology, biblical archaeology, often, get, often illuminates. It often, it often gives uh, helpful insights. Uh, and uh, that, that certainly, that reality of Herod's palace tells us something about that king. More generally, it tells us something about kings as a whole. It tells us something that... that uh, there's something about humanity here. There's something about Psalm 2, why the nations rage. And uh, kings, the rulers of the earth, plot together a vain plot. That they rage against God, against the Lord. And again, against his anointed one, against the cross. You've heard me say, against the Christ. You've heard me say before that I think... Anytime I, don't, I wonder about what's going on, I don't understand why things are as they are, I go back to Psalm 2. That's kind of my go-to, and it explains things. Well, here you have a, a picture of the ruins from Herod the Great's palace, and then there's other things that have built on them since. And so you have other dynasties that have come along after Herod and Pilate and the Romans. You have those that were there prior to Herod and prior to the Romans. And that tells us something, too. It reminds us. This kingdom come, these kingdoms come, and these kingdoms go. But I want to give you just an illustration. There, there's something of, of those ruins from Herod's palace, and a little bit more of what it looked like in the first century. That this is where Jesus would have been brought before Pilate, and there he would have stood on that pavement. It was a massive uh, pal palatial compound. And this would have been the place of, it's called in the New Testament the praetorium. The praetorium simply means the general's tent. 
Wherever the governor was, was the praetorium. Wherever he pitched his tent. And when he was in Jerusalem on feast days or other days when he just chose to be there, where the governor pitched his tent at the former King Herod's palace. If you want to make a statement that you're the one in charge, where else would you be? It's odd to think that when Pilate would come to Jerusalem, he would stay at the barracks down there in the Antonio Fortress, which was a fort and soldier barracks. And he would let, what, Herod Antipas stay in this palace instead? Probably not. And so Pilate thinks he's in charge or wants people to think he's in charge. Maybe a more um, accurate way to say it. In the midst of all this, I'm alluding to a social dynamic, a historical moment and a mindset among people in that historical moment. And I, and I, I want to, in that setting, give you an overview of Mark chapter 15 as I see it, what I want us to take away from this. So I, I, I would have put this phrase in the bulletin if I had got it there in time. So that's my fault, so I'll put it up for you that you can see it here. In the midst of cultural leaders who rage against him, political leaders who follow the currents of the times rather than lead, and multitudes who are easily manipulated and swayed, in the midst of that political dynamic, Jesus is king. Jesus is sovereign even over his own death for us. No one takes his life from it. From him. He lays it down on his own accord. And he will be believed on, as we'll see, by those whom we would not expect. Let's look at a little bit more at that cultural dynamic. We can leave this statement up. If some of you want to copy that down, uh, you can. I'll leave that up for, for, for just a, a, a few moments while, while we begin reading. In Mark chapter 15, from verse 1. As soon as it was morning, 6 a.m., the chief priests held the consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so, or you say it. The chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them to release a prisoner during the feast of Passover. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Pilate seems to be expecting that of the two, because Jesus has been popular among the people, and as the priests who are jealous of him, he expects if he gives them a choice between Barabbas, this murderous insurrectionist, and Jesus, they're going to choose Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, 
crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. We need to understand the social dynamics of the moment. It's interesting, the social dynamics of that moment are not so different at times to moments we find ourselves in. Cultural leaders rage out against Jesus. Don't listen to what he says or has said. Listen to what we say. We've got the right take on things. Follow us instead. We're in charge. People should listen to us. They mislead. They misrepresent. They obscure the truth. They rationalize among themselves. Not even realizing sometimes what they're saying. As the chief priest said earlier this same week, you know, it's better that one man should die rather than all the people perish. What he thinks he's saying is if we let this Jesus continue, this Jesus is going to stir up so much trouble that the Romans are going to come in and kill a bunch of us. We need to take him out so that it doesn't cause the, life, doesn't cause the loss of more life. That's what they think they're saying. But they are saying, Actually, the high priest ends up prophesying in this statement as he says, it's better that one should die for the people rather than that the, all, the whole people perish. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Going to die for us lest we perish. They rationalize among themselves. They hire liars they threaten to cancel, to recall Pilate the governor. They intimidate, they insinuate his disloyalty to Caesar. At a time when that's a scary insinuation to make. Caesar Tiberius at this time is absolutely paranoid. He executes those close to him if he gets a rumor that maybe they might be thinking something disloyal. If Pilate doesn't seem to be a friend of Caesar... He's finished, literally. And so the political leader cows to the crowd. He follows the crowd rather than doing what's right. He's, he, Pilate would make a good surfer. What do I mean? Like any surfer knows, you ride the wave or it will crush you. He's going to ride this wave. He's going he's to paddle like crazy that he can stay on top of it or it is going to take him under as well. You know, it's a shame when we have political leaders that are that weak that they don't lead. That they actually follow along with the loudest voices instead. Intimidated themselves into going along when they can see the destruction happening around them. Let me just insinuate one example. The leadership in Portland realizes the damage that has been done. And it's not merely in the last year or two, although that's brought it raging to the surface. But the damage has been going on for years, and people now are openly talking, is Portland finished? How long will it take for Portland to recover if it does? And maybe, just maybe, I'm not a political leader. Maybe I don't know. But could it be that keep Portland weird was not an enduring enough principle to build a stable society among. Maybe we overlooked something. The masses are easily manipulated in this story. 
stirred up by emotion. They're carried along by what they want now. Maybe they're, they're swayed. Pilate can't believe it, but maybe they're swayed to go with this insurrectionist rather than Jesus because Jesus hasn't led any rebellion against the Roman. Maybe Barabbas will do that for us. You know, some historians actually tell us that Barabbas, was, whose, which name literally means the son of his father, not a terribly imaginative name. I think most people, most men are the son of their father. Well, I guess you can't say that anymore. Um, but historians tell us that, that he was actually Jesus Barabbas, Joshua Barabbas, Yeshua Barabbas. And so you have a choice here between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus who is the Christ. Which Jesus do you choose? What kind of Jesus do you want? Do you want a Jesus that will lead violent insurrection against Rome? He's done it before. Of course, look what it got him. Or do you want this Jesus who heals people? Who, who sees a need and has a compassionate heart? Who has spiritual authority even over darkness and demons? Who has even raised people from the dead? But he hasn't led a resurrection against Rome. In fact, he's told us to pay taxes. He told us to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Which kind of Jesus do you want? And the crowd here at the moment seems to want a different kind of Jesus. It is amazing when you think about it. With the populist opinion that was strongly against Rome, so that asking a question about taxes was such a big deal, in that moment that this Jewish popular crowd would actually declare that they want the Romans to crucify one of their own. Isn't that odd? Isn't that peculiar? That's head-scratching. That's, that's inexplicable. We can't really explain that except the easily manipulated mass hysteria. The crowd dynamic that comes into play here. They want what they want now rather than what is truly right, just, or good. And there's, there's got to be application there. Don't let the tone of the times obscure what is true. There is truth still. Truth is still true no matter what the mood of the moment says. No matter what mass hysteria says, there is still truth that is absolute. We live at a time when people would say that men can give birth. That's a confused day. We are told to, to listen to the science by those that deny the basics of biology. We are, we are at a day that's long gone beyond the emperor has no clothes. Nowadays, when the emperor has no clothes, we're told that the emperor is actually an empress. Believe it or not. These are strange times, and yet true is still true. But if you're going to hold to, God's truth is true. In an age like today, you can expect there's going to be a multitude contrary to you. One of the things that concerns me most in our present moment, well, it's why you're sitting where you are today. You may have had trouble finding your seat when you came in this morning. Sorry about that. That's on me. We had a wedding yesterday. Elia and Sarah were married. In the midst of all the confusion that's around us still, 
this woman is joined to this man. And the two became one. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's still true. And so we rearrange the seating with a center aisle, which the bride can come down. And I said, you know, can we leave the seating that way today? I know it's going to, that way for today, I know it's going to upset some people. Where's my seat? But that's okay. Because I wanted to, I wanted you to feel, first of all, that tension. That's good for us. And I wanted you to feel as well the potential of a church divided, split into left and right. Because in a moment like this, we, we talked earlier, and when, when, um, when one of our elders, Mike, uh, paraphrased, as we have before, Romans 14, let the one who wears a mask not judge the one who does not. And let not the one who does not wear a mask dis- dis- despise the one or look down upon the one who does wear a mask. Because God has called us to peace. And it's funny. Because we do. We do. We do somewhere within us make a judgment about somebody else because of how they're responding in conscience to this moment. And the greater danger than the virus itself is how that potentially could divide Christians within this church and the way it could distract us then in those tensions away from our essential mission, which is greater than life itself because it is life eternal. That's what God has given us to focus on. And we dare not be distracted because of the social dynamics and the political moment in which we find ourselves. Everybody in these first 15 verses, everybody is looking out to preserve their own interests except Jesus. Verses 4 and 5. Have you no answer to make? See the charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. He offered no defense for himself. And there's something going on there. He is not going to protect himself from the cross. He intends to die there. And yet he's not going to give that to them. They must decide. They must be guilty of his death. Even as to some extent, all of us are, because it is for our sin that Jesus dies. Jesus is rejected. Jesus will be crucified, not for anything wrong that he's done, but because he is the Christ, he is the sovereign son of God, he is the king of Israel. That is his only crime. Look at verse 2 again. He's not what the world expects. He's not what the rulers of this world expect. Pilate looks him over, up and down. And there he is in an itinerant rabbi's robe. Nothing fancy here. Probably when Pilate knew they were going to be bringing a pretender king before him, somebody who was claiming to be the true and legitimate king of Israel, he was expecting somebody who would come in Herod Antipas's pride and pompousness. And here this humble teacher and healer stands before him. He said, you? You? Are the king of Israel? It's not what the world expects. And Jesus' answer is, you say so. 
Now, what is he doing with that? It's such an ambiguous answer. Translators aren't, aren't sure what to do with that. Some of your Bibles will read one way or another because it's like, that's, 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 a, that's a strange answer. You say so. What is Jesus saying? He's neither confirming nor denying. He's not going to deny that he's the king. He's not going to deny the essential charge. He cannot deny who he is. God will be true always, though every man be found a liar. He will not, he will not deny the truth. But he's not going to confirm it for Pilate. Pilate needs to make that decision for himself at this point. And if Jesus says, you bet I am, then Pilate can say, okay, well, on that basis then, because of what you claim, we will execute you. And he could say it's merely because of what Jesus claimed. But if Pilate's going to execute him now, Jesus won't say it. He leaves it for Pilate to say. So if Pilate's going to execute him now, it's because Pilate believes he is the king. Okay? But if Pilate believes that he is the king, if that is true, and that's the only charge against him, why is he executed for that which is true? He's put them in quite a dilemma that they're left to do what is wrong because he will stand for what is right. He's mocked by weak bullies in the midst of this. So a pilot has made his decision, delivered him to be crucified in verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, and they called together the whole battalion, a cohort, 600 soldiers probably, they clothe him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes again and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby or Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, He is guilty merely of this, the king of the Jews." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. He's mocked by weak bullies there within the palace as the cohort of soldiers gathered around. He's mocked by bullies who think they are strong and believe that they are right simply because God does not intervene and do anything about it. He lets it stand for now. But can you imagine the terrible reversal that is coming. I think in my head to Psalm 2 again, this time in verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. There is coming a day. 
He's condemned by those who think they can prevent God's purpose. God's king has come, but we will not have this man rule over us. They rail against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us cast their cords from us. And so they crucify God's king. They think they've put God's king to rest once and for all, like the parable of the vineyard. They think that now that they have killed the owner's son, God is somehow going to let them be in charge. God is somehow going to give the vineyard to them. Not at all. Not on their lives, actually. He's rejected by the priest, the scribes, those who worship success. Okay, you're the Christ? Okay, you're the son of God? Well, then let's see it. Let's see the success of it. Let's see you trump Rome then. If if you're going to be the Christ, do it on our terms. We want to see the success of it. We want to see you make the difference. He's going to make a difference that they cannot see. But they insist that it be on their terms. You do this and then we will believe. But if he comes down from the cross... There's nothing to believe. If you come down from the cross, there's nothing worth believing. It's there on the cross that he dies for me in my place. That's what I believe God concerning his son. That he is the one who takes away my sin. Doing so because he bears it in himself for me. To come down to save himself would be to not save any others. Even you, even me. No, even if he did, they would not believe. They would not believe, but some will. Some will. That's the move that's coming from verse 33. To trust in God's Son who has opened the way for us into God's salvation. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So we're talking noon now to 3 o'clock, counting from 6 a.m. when morning starts. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But some of the bystanders hearing it misheard. They've misheard all along. Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What's happening here? Jesus calls out, and in that loud call, in that loud cry, they think he's calling Elijah, but he's not. What is he doing? Jesus is preaching his last sermon. He's saying, open your Bibles to Psalm 22. In your heads, in your hearts, remember what Psalm 22. Psalm 22, he gives us the opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry 
by day, but you do not answer. I cry by night, but I find no rest. Have you felt that way? Have there been times when you have asked, you have cried, you have been desperate for God to intervene, and yet it seems he does not? It seems that there is silence from heaven when you think you need an answer most of all. And it feels to you also that God has forsaken you. Why do you not answer me? Well, we will feel forsaken. And yet we are not. For God himself has promised you are his child. If you have believed in Jesus, you are his child. He said, I will never leave you. No, I will never forsake you. Interestingly, he doesn't make that promise to his own son so that he can make it to you. So has he loved us. Jesus' words in Psalm 22 or the words about him in Psalm 22 that those opening lines are meant to turn our, our minds to continue on. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are pulled out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted or burst within my breast. My strength is dried up like broken pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. These previous lines out of Psalm 22, which Jesus refers to, are so descriptive of the cross that it would seem that the next lines cannot be. How can there be any rescue from there? How can there be any deliverance? How can there be any recovery when this is one's experience on the cross as life slowly leaks out of their body? Those next lines in verse 20, Deliver my soul from the sword. Deliver my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then this Shout of triumph, you have heard me. You have answered me. You have rescued me. How does that happen? From these throes of death in crucifixion to verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. As Jesus says at his tomb, at his resurrection to the women, he says, go and tell my brothers that I go before them to Galilee. I will tell of your name to my brothers, for God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. In Psalm 22, in that horrible depiction of the realities of crucifixion, it ends somehow in victory. It ends somehow in celebration. It closes in a word of triumphal rescue. And that is what Jesus is doing. That is what's going on on the cross before us. That Jesus drinks vinegar. He would not drink the water with myrrh earlier. He spurned it. He turns away from it. But he'll, he'll drink the vinegar. He'll clear his throat for one last loud cry before he dies. And that is unusual. 
What is the loud cry that he says? Well, the other Gospels fill it in for us. It's a a declaration, a loud, triumphant shout. It is finished. It is done. God's work here is done. And then, with a loud voice, he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this is after the darkness This is after the three hours of darkness from noon to three o'clock when what is going on here is so terrible, when the Son of God himself bears the sin of all humanity on that cross, in that death, that God himself turns his face away. We've read about the sun going dark. We came across that in Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, that was the day of God's wrath And there is a time when the sun is going to go dark and then the world out of that darkness will see the coming, the Shekinah glory of the Son of Man coming, returning in triumph, in victory, to rule and to reign. But before that darkness of of the day of God's wrath comes upon all of the earth, it first here on this day comes upon His Son. First of all, the Son of God Himself bears the wrath of God for all of us, for you and for me. That's what's going on here. And then in that moment, having finished it, He can commit His his Spirit into God's hand, and God will, as Psalm 22 says, rescue Him. And the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. That's which separated humanity and even the priests from the very presence of God within the temple. That way has been opened up, symbolizing that in his death for us, the entrance into God's presence has been made open. We can now come. And there's a man there observing all of this. And this is a man who knows crucifixion. This Roman officer, this centurion who has the responsibility, who's in charge of the execution detail, and this is probably not his first rodeo. They did this all the time. And as he's watched him die, his death is different. That loud voice, that triumphant shout, men who are crucified do not die that way. Crucifixion is a horrible, slow and painful death. It could take two or three days. But you died at the end of any last final strength or energy. Your life did not leave you with a shout of triumph. Your life left you with a whimper and a last gurgled gasp because you're not able, you die from suffocation because you're not able to raise yourself to breathe again. This is why they hurried the death of the other two by breaking their legs because Passover was coming and they could not leave the bodies there. And so if they break the legs, they cannot continue to push themselves up to breathe again. They labor for every breath until they can no longer. But Jesus dies on his own. He lays his life down in full strength, in a triumphant shout. And the man who knows crucifixion watches this, a Roman soldier, and he says, truly this man was the Son of God. Now think of that for a moment. Mark is writing to the church in Rome. Mark is writing to Christians who will themselves be under the authority of these Roman officials. 
And, and they are sensing the mood is changing. Persecution is beginning here and there. And it's going to ramp up. It's going to get much worse. And, and Mark is preparing them in advance that even in this moment, when the mood is against you, when the social-political dynamic of the day is contrary to the Lord and his Christ, still, there will be those who believe even those who seem most unlikely to believe to you and to me. As those Roman Christians would have thought about a Roman soldier. And yet when Paul comes to Rome, when Paul is arrested, when Paul is under confinement, through him the gospel of Jesus enters into the whole Praetorian Guard. Through him and his testimony, even in imprisonment, the gospel enters even into Caesar's own household where you would least expect it to be planted, to take root, and to grow. Do you believe like that centurion on that day? Do you believe today that truly Jesus is the Son of God? He's not a victim of a tumultuous time. He intentionally laid down his life for your guilt and for mine. Do you believe that through him that God has opened up the way into his own presence for us? Because that's what he has done. Jesus stepped down from heaven's throne into our humanity. That bearing our humanity, he may take our guilt upon himself. And that's what we remember in this cup. We remember his death for us. Now, an awkward thing has happened this morning. We ran out of these. Some of you have these. Go ahead and take it out now. Some of you do not. Some of you, when you came in, they were already gone. You found some more? We have some more. So if you did not receive and would like to, just put your hand up now and the, there, there's ushers in the back that will bring those to you. So you can participate with us. Because what we do here is we declare through these basic elements that this is when we participate together in this bread, we participate in the body of Jesus, he who bore our sin in our place. When we participate together in this cup, we participate in his death for us, in his blood shed for us, that this indeed is the sacrifice for our sin. So I ask you again, I invite you to join us. But to join us doing so as we each partake individually, because each one of us needs to declare individually, what that Roman soldier is doing is he is confessing his agreement with what God has said. When he declares, truly this was the Son of God, we've heard that before. That was God's own testimony concerning his Son way over here in Mark chapter 1 where the voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased.
And way at the other end, there's one of those last Markin sandwiches, one of those brackets. What was here is now here. What was at the beginning is now at the end. Where the most unlikeliest of people himself believes truly this was. He is the Son of God. Do you believe it? You see, to confess faith in Jesus is to confess, is to say the same thing. Even as that Roman soldier is essentially saying, I believe God concerning Jesus. Do you believe what God has said concerning Jesus? That's what we say when we take this bread, when we take this cup. Individually, not because I'm with others, but for me, I believe what God has said concerning Jesus. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning in taking these elements that we believe that Jesus, your Son, laid down his truly human life in our place. That the Son of God himself took on humanity that he might give his life in death in our place for the guilt of our sins so that we could be brought home to you. That we could again be in right relationship with you like that curtain torn, nothing any longer in the way between us in relationship with you. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that in taking this cup, we will declare individually our own faith in his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for this. And if, Lord, there is someone here this morning who has perhaps been around this reality before, but this is a moment for them when they can plant their own foot and say, truly today, I believe God concerning his son. Truly, I believe that Jesus is God's son who died for me. Oh, Lord, strengthen their faith and give them courage, Lord, to share that clarity in trusting Jesus with someone even this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so on that, just as, as we read a couple of, of weeks ago, out of Mark chapter 13, in that Last Supper, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. And so take and eat in your own confession of faith in him. And the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. After that Passover supper, he took that cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness, the remission, the removal of your sin. So in faith in that, confessing that is your belief, take and drink in remembrance of him. As often as we eat this bread and drink this particular cup, we, we are declaring, we are confessing two things. We are declaring the Lord's death for us, A, until He comes. And so let's close our service this morning in singing 
those two truths. Jesus has given us life through his life for us, and he is coming to be with us forever. Amen.